Jason, welcome to the platform. How you doing? I'm good, Jerome. Thanks for having me. No, nah, I'm excited um, that you're here. I'm excited to talk about the work um, at the Tennessee Innocence Project. And um, yes, yeah, it, and it's very timely, too. I think that you're here because we, we was talking off air a little bit about what Biden just passed. So I want to get into that as well. But before we get into all of the spicy, good criminal legal criminal justice however you want to say it all this stuff I want to talk about just a little bit about your about your journey sure. in, the, in the criminal legal system um and your inspiration in getting into this field yeah so i mean i was one of those people that went to law school um not necessarily knowing what kind of lawyer i wanted to be and it wasn't until my third year in law school that i got myself into a clinic and i started representing folks who were charged with crimes mm-hmm. And I said, this is really what I want to do. Um, you know, I had worked in New York and in Boston over the summers in law school, even though I was at school down here in Nashville. And I went to school with my wife and we sort of decided our third year we wanted to stay in the same place. So we just sort of made a deal that, all right, well, let's stay in Nashville. Okay. And because we were dating and we got married after we graduated from law school and she took a job here in town. And I said, well, then I want to go work at the public defender's office. So that's what I did. And I did that for 10 years before I left and then went into private practice and did a combination of civil and criminal work for 10 more years after that almost. And then left the law firm I was working at to take over as the senior legal counsel at the Tennessee Innocence Project. What did you know about the public defender's office before you went? Like, what, what did was, was like? Why choose that environment? Why choose that way to enter and start your legal career? So I, I, I think I knew even before I started working in the criminal clinic at school that I, I wanted to, I wanted to be a trial lawyer, okay, and I wanted to do something in the public interest sector, okay. Um, that's that's just always kind of what I wanted to do. And then when I just started representing people, I liked it. Mm-hmm. You know, I liked hearing their stories. I liked getting to help folks out who needed the help. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it really was, I think this is the right fit for me. And then I started interning there while I was a third-year student as well. I was like, you know, this is great. And the, the person who hired me at the time, a guy named Ross Alderman, um, you know, when you try to get a job at a public defender's office, it, it's really driven by what the budget looks like. Right. And I was like, <laughs> I want to work here. And he's like, well, I don't have a job. Like, I'll hire you if I get a job. Right. Um, so I was like, well, I got to figure out plan B. So then I started interviewing with judges, mm-hmm. um, maybe to do a clerkship until I can get a job as a public defender. And uh, I was over at the office one day just interning. And he called me in the office. He said, are you going on an interview with a judge tomorrow? And I was like, yeah. He's like, that's my wife she was on the court of appeals at the time and i was like well yeah like you haven't offered me a job i need a job <laughs> so he's like no 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 no. don't go on the interview you have a job and he just offered me a job that day and then that was it and uh you know i worked there for 10 years and i loved working there i mean there's a big part of me that will always be a public defender no matter what i do and so was growing up was being a lawyer something that you always knew you would do? Is that influenced by parents that was maybe in, in law? Or where did that inspiration come from? I, I don't think so. Um, you know, I grew up in a real blue-collar town in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Nobody in my family was a lawyer. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody had gone to law school or anything like that. Um, and 
I always enjoyed public speaking. I always enjoyed advocating for people and arguing. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I had, I think, some of those traits that, right. that fit with being a lawyer. But honestly, when I graduated from college, uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do. A lot of my friends were taking jobs as consultants and bankers and things like that. And mm-hmm. that wasn't for me. Right. So I said, well, I'm going to go to law school and I'll figure it out. Right. Uh, and that, that was sort of the plan and what I did. <laughs> I, I wish I had a... <laughs> You know, no, a, not a, good, a more inspirational <laughs> answer than that, but that, that's happens, really how I ended up there. It happens like that sometimes. Yeah. No, that, no, that's perfectly fine. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's kind of funny. Like, I just, because it's, because a lot of folks that I talk to, especially when they go into like criminal like law, right? It's like, it's something maybe they experienced or had close proximity to with family members or peers to say, hey, I want to figure out how to change this system or be a part of the change that can happen in this system. And so I'm always curious on what that may have been or what was that thing like, Oh, you know, this is exactly like, this is the moment where I realized this is where I I can make the most change uh, with the talents that I have. Yeah. I mean, I was a kid and I wanted a job where I could help people. Right. And I, and I found myself in a position getting to represent poor folks charged with crimes and mm-hmm. I liked it and I right. was good at it. And I said, you know, this is what I want to do. Right. And you know, it's funny sometimes because I think a lot of people, particularly young people who become public defenders right out of law school in theory, like the idea of that. Mm-hmm. And then it's like seven thirty in the morning and you're <laughs> in a jail cell talking to somebody eating a bologna sandwich. Right. And you're like, is this why I went to law school? Uh, <laughs> But I loved it. You know, I mean, that was it just felt like the place where I was supposed to be. Right. And what did you learn about, um, I guess, human beings um, being in a public defender's office, being 730 in the morning, talking to those who have been um, charged with some type of offense, um, may be innocent, may be guilty. Um, but what did you learn from human beings and 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 how, I guess, I I criminal legal system like treats those human beings and you got to face the like you 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 get up and close as personal as, as anybody can be um so i'm curious on what what did you learn about just humans and people and i mean i think the biggest thing you learn when you work at a job like that is that people are far better than any bad decisions they've made mm. or anything they've done on their worst day i actually think we would all be better off if we got to know people beyond, you know, the crime they're charged with or what the file says, because mm-hmm. I mean, there's humanity in everybody. I right. mean, I, I, I have met people doing this kind of work for a long time now who have been charged with everything under the sun that you can think of people who are guilty and people who are innocent. And they're all good people in their own ways. Right. And, you know, people make decisions and end up in places a lot of times because, they didn't have the opportunities I had. They didn't grow up where I grew up. They didn't grow up with the good parents that I grew up with. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're, we're quick to judge people when they make bad decisions and why they end up in these places without knowing the backstory knowing Mm -hmm. how they got there, knowing who these folks are as people. Mm -hmm. And we would do everything better if we took more time to learn those things. How did those interactions with those folks that may have come up with a different background than you did, help you reflect on your actual upbringing and like, man, like, like my proximity to what these folks may be going through. I had none of that. And how do you prepare yourself to deal or to help and build with those type of clients when you've never, or don't have any experience with maybe the culture that they come from, 
um, the experiences that they've they have went through and live, um, whatever you know, childhood adverses they've been through. Parent, like, how do you, how does that, how does that work? Together? How do you grow in, in in like in those moments? It's a hard question. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. I, look, the best way I know how to come at that is mm-hmm. that I think you have to be conscious of the fact that you grew up with privilege and opportunity that others didn't have. Mm-hmm. And I think if you come into the conversation knowing that, mm-hmm. then I, I think that directs how the interaction goes. But right. honestly, you know, the approach I took with clients all the time, and I still take with clients, is that, you know, you don't have to believe a word I say. You know, right. I'm going to prove to you that I'm here to help you. Right. And, you know, my actions will speak for themselves. Right. People know whether you care and whether you're working hard. Mm-hmm. Um, it, and, and you can be from different backgrounds. You right. can have different shared experiences, right. but there can be an understanding right. that, okay, this is a guy that really is trying to help me mm-hmm. and, and I believe him. Right. And, and, and that usually works out. Right. I mean, because if people care and they're working hard, mm-hmm. then you can figure the rest of it out. You can right. find ways that you have things in common. You can relate to each other. And that doesn't mean it happens with every client, right? right? I mean, I've had plenty of clients that we couldn't have been more different. Mm-hmm. And outside of the relationship, we probably wouldn't have liked each other because we were very different people. Right. But we were all trying to do the same thing. Right. So y- you've got to figure that out. Do you have like a... Um like a like a, like a story that that really like resonates with you where you did have one of those encounters where going in you didn't know <laughs> kind of how this was going to go but it ended up being you know one of the most impactful things um that affected you just not professionally but also personally or maybe the personal relationship that you built um with the client so when I was in law school, um, this was sort of the first formative interaction I had with a client. I, I represented um, a, a girl at the time. She was 16 years old, and mm-hmm. she was in juvenile court. She was charged with shoplifting. And I'm a baby lawyer at this time. I'm not even a lawyer. I'm in law school. <laughs> so I'm like 22 years old. And she was charged with shoplifting, and I was in the clinic, so I was representing her. So I, would, I went down to juvenile court, mm-hmm. and I negotiated this agreement for her. She was pregnant at the time. And we worked this deal out that if she went for 16 weeks to a parenting class Mm -hmm. down in juvenile court, then they would dismiss the charges against her. Well, she lived out in Madison. She didn't have a car. She had no way to get to juvenile court for her parenting class. So I would just pick her up every week. And I'd I'd get out of my classes at school, and I'd go pick her up in Madison, and I'd bring her down to juvenile court, and she'd go to the parenting class, and I would just sit out in the hallway Mm -hmm. and study for my classes. And, you know, I didn't have a lot in common with this young woman. I was just trying to help her out. Right. And after about six weeks of doing this, I'm sitting out in the hallway reading my book. After one of the classes, the teacher comes out and says to me, you know, daddies are welcome, too. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, oh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not the daddy, but thank you. Thank you for what you're doing. My, my girlfriend took her the next week because I was like, you need to, like, give me a break. Um, but I stayed tight with, um, that young woman for years after that, even when I was a public defender and I kind of kept up with her and what she was doing with her life. And I've had lots of stories like that with clients, but that was like one of the first interactions where it was like, (laughs) man, this is great. Like who doesn't, who doesn't want to work at a job like this? (laughs) Oh, that's funny. Um, it's 10 years at the public defender's office. Mm -hmm. What was maybe one or two things that you learned 
that impacted you the most about the criminal legal system? Um, Good or bad? <laughs> yeah. I think one of the hardest lessons that I learned while I was there, and you know, I mean, you know this to an extent before you even take the job, but there are many things about the system that are just arbitrary and capricious and, and certainly driven by money, right? Mm -hmm. And, and folks who find themselves in these positions that, that don't have money, that can't post bond, that are, that are having to fight their situation from behind bars, they're forced to make different decisions than mm -hmm. folks that come at it from a different perspective. And, you know, an example I tell people all the time, and this gets into the innocence work that I do now, is mm -hmm. that it's impossible to know how many innocent people are wrongfully convicted for a lot of reasons. But one of the main reasons is because people make rational decisions to plead guilty who are innocent because of their economic situation. Right. Right. And, and people are always like, well, how does that happen? And I was like, well, you need to have a bit of an understanding of how the system works. But if you're charged with, I mean, say you're charged with a felony drug offense mm -hmm. and you're not guilty of it, whatever the circumstances are, you're not guilty of it, but you find yourself charged with a felony drug offense and you can't post your bond. Right. Um, but you've got a job, you've got a family at home you're trying to take care of, and you find yourself on the jail docket. And your options at this point are to say, look, I'm innocent. I'm going to fight this. Well, that's great. Let's have a preliminary hearing where you're going to get bound over because it's just a probable cause hearing. You're going to be in jail for a few months for that. You're going to get up to criminal court. and You're going to be like, well, now's my time mm -hmm. to prove my innocence. And you show up for that first court date and all you do is say, I'm not guilty. Mm -hmm. And then you have a whole bunch of more court dates before you get to have your trial a year later, if you're lucky, right. where hopefully the truth comes out and you're found not guilty and you know, you're vindicated and you go home. But you've now missed a year, a year and a half of your life away from your family, away mm -hmm. from your job. So that's option number one for that innocent person. Right. Option number two is to plead guilty and take probation and walk out of jail that day. Right. So I'm not saying what the right or wrong answer is there. People have different opinions on what they're going to do for themselves in that situation. Right. But the effect of it, no question, is that people are pleading guilty to crimes they didn't commit because of economic reasons that have nothing to do with guilt or innocence. And it happens all the time. Is there a way that the system can correct that? There's a lot of ways the system can correct it, but the, the biggest one is to, you know, change how we handle bail and how we handle pretrial incarceration. I mean, mm -hmm. we're talking about People have not been convicted of anything. They right. are presumed innocent under the law. Right. Um, it's not how we do things in federal court. Right. You know, in federal court, it's a very different system. You know, they're looking at, are you a flight risk and are you dangerous? Mm -hmm. If you're neither of those things, it doesn't really matter what you're charged with. You get to fight your charge from the streets. Right. And we don't do that in state court. So we've got people, you know, that are facing drug offenses, because that's who most of the people are in the system, right. can't post a $10,000 bond because they don't have $1,000 in their bank account to go you know, pay 10% to a bonding company. Right. So they've got to fight their charges from in custody. And, and they might be innocent and they might win, but they're going to sit there for a year, year and a half. And, mm. and that's not right. And as a right. result of that, people plead guilty to stuff they didn't do. I want to pivot into like your work that you do now with the Tennessee Innocence Project. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, which I think is just amazing work. And so if you all listen to this and you haven't heard about this work, this is, this is cut the volume up. 
I cut the volume up. And so, Jason, can you just give us the mission statement or the, the purpose of the of tip? We're a nonprofit law firm fighting for innocent people in Tennessee that were wrongfully convicted. How many in 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 tip has been happening here 2018 2019, 2019 okay. is when we formed so there was a, there was an innocence clinic at the University of Tennessee that it okay. existed prior to that um, and it, it wasn't um, it wasn't totally a statewide organization they weren't really in in, in Memphis and, and they were around for a period of time and then when that clinic was not around anymore there were a bunch of people some who were involved with that clinic other people around the state who said you know we need a full-time statewide organization doing innocence work right. in Tennessee so in 2019, the organization formed uh, Jessica Van Dyke, who is our executive director, um, was the first executive director and has been our executive director the entire time. And she was the only lawyer for a period of time wearing a lot of hats. Mm-hmm. And then um, I eventually came over as the senior legal counsel. And now we have four full-time attorneys on staff, plus the rest of our staff. And mm-hmm. we are covering cases all over the state of Tennessee. So, you know, we represent everybody, you know, sitting in prison in Mountain City on the border of North Carolina to people up in Northwest on the border of Arkansas. Right, right. Um, What does that process look like of exoneration? Uh, If I have a family member, a friend, Mm -hmm. and say, hey, Jason, look, it's been 10, 15, 20 years I know he or she is innocent. You know, what can I do? I'm broke. I have no money. <laughs> I've used all that. Yeah. You know, uh, the first five or 10 years, yeah. right? that, that is gone. Well, that's the good news right. is that we're free. <laughs> you know, right. <laughs> if we take your case, you don't pay us a penny. And and so what is that process? What is that experience and journey like for a family member, a friend, or somebody that's trying to support just a community member that they know you know, and believe is innocent of the offense they was, you know, um, convicted for. Yeah. The first thing to do is to reach out to us because we're always on the lookout for mm-hmm. who these folks are that we can try to help. And, and a lot of people do reach out to us, which is great. Um, our information is across the state in every prison in Tennessee. So people know how to write to us and they do. The first step in that process when somebody reaches out to us and writes to us is that we send them our initial application so we can learn more about them. Okay. If we get that from them and it looks like it's a case where maybe we can help them, we ask them for more information. Now, let me clarify and say that the types of cases we handle are actual innocence cases. So there there are lots of other people that, that need good lawyers for important reasons, like they have a self-defense case and they shouldn't have been convicted. There was a a bad search of their car and they shouldn't have been convicted. There was a Miranda violation. All important things where people need good representation. It, it's just not what we do. We right. only do actual innocence cases. You know, people were convicted of a crime they, they did not commit. Right. So if we get through that application process and we've learned about somebody and we think it's a situation where we can help, then we start to investigate, which means... We pull the record, which is normally enormous because these cases have gone on, as you say, right. 10, 15, 20 years. Right. So we read the trial transcripts. We read the appellate opinions. We dig through all of the exhibits that were filed. We try and figure out what evidence might still exist that we could do DNA or fingerprint testing with. Mm-hmm. We 
if we get through all that and we still think there's something there, then we work directly with the person. We start interviewing witnesses. We start hiring experts. And we will do all of this before we even take somebody on as a client or agree to go to court for them. Because I think it's really important. And one of the things we talk about is we can do the most to help people by having the credibility that when we walk into a courtroom, the judge is saying, the Tennessee Innocence Project is here. This person's probably innocent. Right. And the way we get that credibility is bringing good cases to court where we can prove people are innocent. So we spend a lot of time, months and months and months, investigating these cases Mm -hmm. before we take somebody on as a client. And we're real clear with people about that, too, because... I think the worst thing that you can do for somebody, particularly somebody who's been in the system so long, 15, 20 years, um, is to give them false hope that we can do something when we can't. Because legally, we have very limited options for how we can get back into court to litigate these cases. Um, And there are certain situations where we might believe somebody is innocent, but we can't necessarily get back into court to prove it. And Mm. those are heartbreaking, but that happens. So. We try to be really honest with folks about right. what we're doing every step of the way and what happens next. When you, when you mentioned the the people that you know actually you know like these are actually innocent cases, what does that demographic look like? Who are those people? Is it majority men, women? I'm going to assume <laughs> just because we're in the United States, there's probably majority black and brown folks. Um, um, in this or you know in in this system that are trying to you know be exonerated of something they didn't do um what what does that what does that look like I mean to some extent it's all over the place you okay. know we've had uh we've had four exonerations in the last year wow um, that's amazing and uh two of those were white men and one was a black woman and one was a black man mm-hmm. um I, I think your instinct is is correct in general that the same problems that exist countrywide across the criminal Mm -hmm. legal system that affect you know people of color (laughs) exist within the wrongful conviction realm as well um the statistics are worse for people of color Mm -hmm. in terms of how long it takes to be exonerated Mm -hmm. how many years you spend in prison before exoneration Mm -hmm. um the greater likelihood of being wrongfully convicted of certain crimes like murder or rape um the statistics are all worse across the board for people of color, which is not unique to right. the innocence world. You know, these right. are the same problems that are pervasive throughout the entire system right. exist in this space as well. Right. Um, I will say from our perspective, <clears throat> people reach out to us. It, it's a pretty diverse demographic of people who reach out to us. I would say of the clients that we currently represent, there is a greater percentage of people of color mm-hmm. than anything else, right. but not necessarily as dramatic as the numbers are within the system from the incarceration rates. I wonder, are those people who who are innocent and is trying to get through this innocence process, I wonder how many of them actually maybe had a you know, paid attorney mm-hmm. um, before they got their you know, conviction? It... It really varies. Okay. Um, You know, the problem that we see a lot is, and this goes back to understanding a little bit of how the process works. Like one of the questions that we get is, you know, why did it take 20 years? Right. Like this person had 15 court dates. Why do they need a 16th court date? You know, if 15 courts said this person is guilty, then what are y'all doing now? 
Right. And the problem with that, and this, I'm, I'm taking the long way around to get to what your question no, that's was, yeah. but if the evidence isn't properly presented the first time at the trial, mm-hmm. then most of what's happening on these appellate levels where all of these other court dates are happening mm-hmm. is a review of the evidence that was presented at trial. Right. So if a court never hears the truth the first time, <laughs> then it doesn't matter what all these other courts are doing because they're still not hearing the truth. Right. And sometimes it's not for 15 or 20 years until a court hears the truth for the first time. And you may mm-hmm. have had 15 court dates already. Right. So then back to this question of how we pay for indigent representation in the mm-hmm. state and how that affects wrongful convictions. One of the biggest ways it's affected is at the post-conviction level. Okay. So not to get too in the weeds, but if you're charged with a crime, you have a trial. And if you're convicted, you then have a direct appeal mm-hmm. where the courts review what happened on the trial level. Did evidence come in that shouldn't have come in? Did right. people say things they shouldn't have said? Um, after you go through the appellate process, you have a post-conviction process where you can raise constitutional issues. That's the point where people can put on evidence that their lawyer was ineffective and they should have put on evidence of innocence that the jury never heard. Mm. So the post-conviction process is really your opportunity to show the evidence of innocence that a court never heard before. Well, here's the problem with that, is that a post-conviction hearing is is essentially a new trial because to prove that your lawyer is ineffective, you you don't just need to prove that they did a bad job. You need to prove that they did a bad job and the result would have been different if they had done X, Y, and Z. Mm. So you've got to prove X, Y, and Z, which basically means you've got to go back to court and you've got to have a mini trial and you've got to show what the evidence is that they failed to put on. Right. Well, if they never got that evidence and they never conducted a proper investigation the first time, that means the lawyer in the post-conviction phase, three, five years later, is now doing that investigation for the first time. Right. And... The way that we fund the post-conviction process in the state of Tennessee is that we give lawyers about $1,000 to work those cases. And the majority of post-convictions are, are not retained. It's right. people that have been appointed to represent folks. Right. So if you're giving somebody $1,000 to go back and reinvestigate a murder case that's five years old and come up with the evidence and get the investigators yeah. and get the experts. Not a lot of money. It's not a lot of money. And this is your one opportunity to put on that new proof of innocence. You know, unfortunately, the result of that is that a lot of folks that are doing post-conviction work on that level, one of two things are happening. You have good lawyers that are working hard and trying to help their clients that are doing the job for free Mm -hmm. because they're not getting paid to put in the amount of work. I mean, it takes hundreds and hundreds of hours to prepare a murder case. Um, Or, unfortunately, you have people not doing the work. Right. And the result of that is that this is your one opportunity to go back and put on that innocence evidence that mm-hmm. wasn't presented at trial. And if the attorney doesn't have the funding, doesn't have the training, doesn't have the resources to help the person, court never hears the truth. Mm. So that's why you get through this whole process. And then you get to us 15, 20 years later on your own, spent all your money, your family's <laughs> taken out right. a second mortgage on their house. Right. And still, no one's ever heard the truth. Right. Justice. You know, <laughs> um, this is a word that we hear a lot. And I'm curious, working in the criminal legal system or the criminal justice system for so many years and working on so many cases, 
um, specifically on the criminal defense side and in the um, trying to help those that are, are that are innocent, those who don't have any funds, poor folks, brown folks, black folks that, you know, just are trying to figure it out. Um, what does that justice word mean to you today? And probably comparatively to what it probably meant when you first got into, you know, law. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I, I honestly, I have no idea what that word means. Mm. I mean, I, when we talk about particularly what we do now, when folks get exonerated who have been in prison for 20, 30 years for something they didn't do. Right. And we can celebrate the exoneration. Right. We can be happy that the truth has come out. But there's no justice there. Right. I mean, there's no there's no justice for what happened to that person. There's mm -hmm. no justice for the victim of the crime when, you know, the person who might have done it was never prosecuted and the wrong person was locked up for 20, 30 years. Right. Uh, there's no justice if we give people a little bit of money for taking their life away from them for decades. Right. So, I, look, I don't know. And I don't mean to be a pessimist because I'm not. Right. You know, I'm, I'm, I try to be a glass half full type of person. Mm -hmm. But... I don't see a lot of justice in this work. I see right. a fight that we need to fight, but the best we can ever help for, hope for, is that we fix a tragedy that happened by right. getting a person out and clearing their name, right. which is a good thing, but never is going to fix what happened, never yeah. is going to change what happened. There, there's never going to be any justice for that person. Can you, can you mentioned something about the, the, the money, like a reparations type of thing mm -hmm. that, you know, those are exonerated kind of get. And and you see these, you know, these headlines on the news often such and such, you know, exonerated, was proven innocent after serving 50 years. Right. Um, he or she may be awarded umpteen millions of dollars. How does that process, how, how, how does that process work? And is every person that's exonerated, is that something that they get from, from the state? Um, some type of reparation, some type of, you know, a compensation package for being wrongfully convicted. And what is that money necessarily, what, what, what is that money for? Is that like the makeup for lost time or help you recover? Like what is, what is, can you walk us through that and, and yeah. how do people get to that? So it works differently in different states okay. and it's a complicated process. The way that it works in Tennessee is that there's a statute that addresses compensation for people who are exonerated, but it's not necessarily for people who are judicially exonerated. So okay. you can be declared innocent by the court. So for instance, you know, we had a case earlier this year where the district attorney stood up in court and said, you're innocent. I know you were innocent and we got this wrong. And the charges against them were dismissed and everybody was cleared. Uh, that doesn't mean the person qualifies for compensation at that point. There's okay. still a political process where you have to go through to apply for that. Okay. Um, and if you can jump through the hoops to show that you qualify to get compensation, the statute in Tennessee, it's capped at a million dollars for what you can get, which I, look, I don't, I don't mean to say that a million dollars isn't a lot of money, right. but if you went to prison for 30 years for something you didn't do, a million dollars isn't a lot of money. Yeah, it's not. Yeah. Right. Um, it's nothing like right. who, who would, who would trade that? Nobody right. would. So, you know, those headlines you're talking about, you know, somebody served all these years and they got $50 million from the state, that, that doesn't happen in the state of Tennessee. It okay. doesn't work like that here. All right. So you can get a million and then whether you serve 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, you get a million. And that's if the most you can that's get. That's the most you can get. It, it's not like you get out and, and somebody writes you a check. There's, right. a, there's a process you have to go through and apply for it. Right. 
and I want to, does that process take money? It can. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, it's crazy. Cause you know, we don't, at the Tennessee Innocence Project, we don't handle the civil side of things. Right. Because, uh, frankly, we, we have, with the bodies we have on the ground, we're doing as much to help people who are in prison and try to get them out. Right. So there's other lawyers that, that help people with those kinds of issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there are lots of good lawyers who do it, and I think there are, there are lots of, of, of good lawyers that, that will do it for free, for right. pro bono, and I, I really appreciate that they do that. Right. But, yeah, I mean, if, if you... That could be a situation where you've got to hire somebody mm-hmm. to help you with that. Right. Um, and it, it, it's it's not an easy process. I mean, it, it would be, I think it would be a difficult process to navigate on your own without representation. Right. When it comes to exonerations, where where do we rank as a state as far as like correcting wrongs to what, you know, is happening in other states around the country? Not great. Um <laughs> We've had we've had thirty exonerations since nineteen eighty nine in the state of Tennessee, of and you all just did four of them in the last year. Last year, wow. Um, and and I think there's a reason for that, right? I mean, I think there are a lot of states that have had an innocence organization or multiple innocence organizations on the ground for a long time doing the work, mm-hmm. and you see a direct correlation between organizations doing the work and an uptick in exonerations. I don't think. Like the re, like we're behind on some of our neighbors in terms of how many exonerations they've had versus we've had, right. and I don't think that's because we do criminal justice better in Tennessee than they do it in Virginia. Right. You know, I think it's just because we, as a state, have had to evolve to a point mm-hmm. where we've got across the state people doing this work, people caring about this work, and you know, this has been building for a long time, right? right. This started with all the good work that they were doing at the University of Tennessee at the clinic in, in getting this up and going, culminating you know, in 2019, we have us having a full statewide organization on the ground doing this work, and, and we need to grow. You right. know, this message needs to get out and we need to be in communities outside of Nashville. We, you know, we, our, our voice needs to be heard in Memphis. Our right. voice needs to be heard in Knoxville. Right. And the more people know about the problem of wrongful convictions and mm-hmm. the more people we have on the ground doing this work, you will continue to see exonerations in this state. Right. Where does the state, as far as legislator, play a role into this um, in either providing funding, providing resources, also wanting to make sure wrongful co- convictions are, you know, um, corrected. Yeah. I'll, I'll say this. You know, I, I, I'm i very appreciative of some of the concern we've seen on both sides of the aisle at the legislature on this okay. issue. Because I don't, I don't think this is a political issue. I right. mean, this is no. one of the things that I tell people all the time is... Nobody wants innocent people in prison. Right. Like it, it doesn't matter what your politics are. It right. doesn't matter where you're from, what you believe. Nobody wants innocent people in prison. Right. So this shouldn't be an adversarial process. This right. shouldn't be a political process. And and you know the state has has shown a willingness to mm-hmm. step up and and talk about legislation to improve these issues. You know we've had a a, a DNA bill on the on the ground here for a long time that we can go back and test DNA, but it's only within the last couple of years that the state legislature passed a, a fingerprint bill mm. that allows us to go back and test old fingerprint evidence in cases wow. for people to see if they're innocent. And and that's great. Yeah. Um, we're super appreciative that they did that. There's other places we, we hope that we can get help too. Right. For instance, 
access to the courtroom is, is one of the things that's difficult in these cases because we have limited legal means for getting back into the courtroom. Um, and not, not to get too deep on this, but basically we can get back to court if we have new scientific evidence that somebody is innocent or in certain situations if we have new non-scientific evidence. But mm -hmm. that's a lot harder. And this is where that's particularly tricky is that if somebody pleads guilty and they have new evidence that they're innocent, but it's not new scientific evidence. It's just new evidence. You know, right. say for whatever reason, a person pleads guilty to robbing a gas station. And 10 years later, after they've been through their appeal and their post-conviction, somebody else comes forward and says, I was at that gas station. That person didn't do it. Here's my iPhone video showing the person who actually did it. Right. There is no legal means for that person to get back into court and prove their innocence. Wow. It does not exist. And that's, that's a flaw that we have in our legislation that we need to do something about. Right. Legislation. <laughs> so, and, and this is, and, and this is the, the thing that I always ask, especially when I'm talking like judges and stuff like that, because, you know, they don't make laws, right? They just mm -hmm. follow what the state legislator and the statutes have written. What is the best way for something like like that to to get back and supported by community? Well, how can we use our voices? How can we use our vote? You know, especially in election year now. Like how how critical are those things to make sure being able to use my new technology <laughs> that proves somebody's innocent or didn't rob or kill somebody to be able to happen? I think a big thing that people can do is use their voices to get these stories out. Okay. So if you know people, you know, if you have a friend, if you have a family member that is in prison for something they didn't do, get that story out, mm -hmm. uh, you know, reach out to us. Right. We'd love you to, to see if we can help, but independent of us, tell the story, tell right. it wherever you need to tell it. You right. know, I mean, that's, what's great about where we are these days. Right. Internet. I mean, yeah. Make, Get yourself a podcast, right. you know, do <laughs> talk video, yeah. do, do what you need to do. I right. mean, I, if you look around the country and the state, um, there are a lot of examples in the state of Tennessee where I think some wrongs have been righted mm -hmm. largely because of the community outcry and people right. getting behind these individuals that bad things happen to. Right. And, and eventually, um, there's movement on the case. Right. So that, that's what I would encourage people to do. You know, if if we can get the stories out of folks who are innocent, mm -hmm. um, you know, the legal part of it, we can talk about what the flaws are and, you know, if we can't get back into court. But if there's a groundswell of support behind innocent people, right. then there's movement to do something about it. Okay, you just made me think about something just historically. Um, because this is a country we live in, um, there were many black and brown folks who were just, just convicted because they was black and brown in this country. Um, some of, some, some of them are, you know, dead or whatever, because it happened so long ago, they died in prison. Um, some people did a thousand years and finally got out. Um, how does that work? Uh, is, is there a process for that? If, you know, if I was convicted of something in the Jim Crow era or my grandfather or uh, auntie, a cousin of mine, and, you know, they could potentially still be locked up, but we know because of that time they was guilty because of the color of their skin. Um, is America in general, 
have some type of obligation to one recognize that 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 occurred we know that happened but how does that work in the exoneration process as well um, are we seeing a lot of those come up um as cases um is it a social responsibility even though these persons have passed to go back and say hey these were wrongful convictions based on discrimination um is does that happen is that is that a thing Look, was I that just complicated? <laughs> well, sure. I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. Right. But I, I, I think certainly it, it could and should happen. Right. You know what? There's a few things in play here. Mm-hmm. So number one, in terms of the work that we're doing, as important as everything that you just talked about is, right. we're pretty focused on folks trying to get folks out of prison right. right now who are in there who shouldn't be. But that's not to say... When the right situation comes along, we don't try and help clear people's names too. You know, okay. one of our four exonerations from last year uh, is a man who died in 2015, sitting in his prison cell um, before he was ever exonerated for a murder he did not commit. Mm. So, yeah, those cases are right. incredibly important, and uh, I think it would be uh, very worthwhile for somebody to go back and look at these historical cases and clear people's names. Right. Um, so, yeah, and yeah. I think and I think there's room within the law to do that, right? Okay. I mean, I think you could get back into court and and prove innocence for those situations. It doesn't right. matter if it was a long time ago. It doesn't right. matter if the person's passed away. Uh, it, it to me, it's really a matter of getting folks to do the work, yeah. right? Identifying the cases and putting the work in to try and clear people's names and get them exonerated. Right. I, I mean, it would be a very cool thing for somebody to work on. Yeah, um, you know, we're we spend all of our time trying to help folks primarily who are locked up right now for understandable reasons. But I think it would be a really cool thing for somebody to go back and look at those kind of cases. Yeah. It just made me think about that as you was talking about it. I was like, man, well, like, I wonder what, like, because those things could, even though that person may be going away, they still lives with family history and things like that. And so I always wonder, I always, you just made me think about, man, I wonder if like, if, if that's a process that tip does or somebody is already doing, but it makes sense that you all are focusing on like cases now and people that are incarcerated now in prison. But that point you make is really important, right? right? When you say it affects family history. I mean, yeah. we end up being really close with the families of folks that we represent because when somebody's wrongfully convicted, it doesn't just affect that person, you know, it, it affects right. their family. Right. And, you know, I'm pretty tight with that the gentleman who passed away who was exonerated. I'm, I'm pretty tight with his son, mm-hmm. you know, because that guy grew up with people telling him that his dad was a murderer and believing his dad was a murderer. And and, and it was 100% untrue. Mm-hmm. And you would be blind to think that that didn't affect his life right. and didn't affect his outlook on the world and didn't right. make things much more difficult for him than he ever deserved. I mean, it's right. bad enough that his father was locked up and he didn't have him in his life. But right. on top of that he's got to deal with the social stigma of everybody mm-hmm. believing that his dad was a murderer. Right. So what wrongful convictions does to families is, is enormous right. and it's generational. Right. So yeah, I think the idea of, of clearing names mm-hmm. and, and, and making people have a better understanding of history is, right. is, is really important. Um, we talked about this a little bit before we got started, but I want to go back into it as far as um, Nashville being a, a progressive blue city right and then once you kind of get out of nashville and maybe memphis and some other surrounding counties like davidson 
in general, things, you know, change a little bit. So I'm curious of still being in the South and how just the historical um, reputation, things that have occurred here plays a part into what you all do at the um, around innocence and and, and maybe the barriers and challenges that that may that may be created in other counties that you may not have in the Nashville or Davidson County. So what we have going for us in Nashville is a really important thing in that Nashville has a conviction review unit, which okay. is a unit within the district attorney's office that specifically exists to look for wrongful convictions and do something about it. And uh, they're really an excellent unit and they take it seriously. <clears throat> and, and I commend them for having an office, a unit within their office that is going back and looking at cases mm-hmm. that, of people who are prosecuted by their office right. and, and <laughs> stepping up and saying yeah. we got it wrong, which they do. Right. Um, but Nashville is the only place in Tennessee that has an office like that. Mm. I think Memphis is moving towards that, which we're really excited about right. and I think is going to be huge for innocent people in Memphis from Memphis who are sitting in prison. Right. But the message that we try to spread with prosecutors all over the state, you know, whether they're from the, the most urban area or the most rural area is that kind of what we were talking about before innocence doesn't need to be adversarial. Right. We don't ever file something in court without giving it to the local district attorney first to look at it and consider it. Mm-hmm. Because what we say to them is, you know, we can work together on this right. and it's good for everybody. Right. Like, I, I mean, I don't, even if you're just looking at it from a political perspective, I think right. the politics for, for prosecutors is good to recognize if there was an injustice and to try to do something about it. Right. So I think that's the way I try to come at maybe different areas, um, maybe mm. places that, uh, or different than where I come from, or right. different from working in an urban area. I think the message is consistent, right. is that this is the type of work that we should all care about and we can collaborate on to do something about. Right. And it's good for everybody, right? right? Getting innocent people out of prison is good for everybody. You know, a district attorney's job isn't to lock people up. A district attorney's job is to do what's right and just. Right. And innocent people being in prison isn't right and just. Right. So we can work together on this. Crime will always be around unless we move into some type of utopia where we all under some type of drug and we just, all right, motions and things that we do are controlled to some type of substance, a medical use or whatever. Um, knowing that and, and, and knowing that, you know, prisons and locking people up don't, haven't stopped crimes from happening. Um, and being in the, you know, the criminal legal system for so long, um, and in restorative justice being a big word thrown around, you know, over the last couple of years, I would say. Um, is there uh is is there a United States of America where, you know, prison is not like the first answer or the second answer, or the all be punishment and harm is the answer to kind of correct actions of crime? Do you foresee that or is it too many things that you know, our, our own economy thrives off of because of the money that is made and, and things for putting people in prison. I mean, I want to hope so. Right. Okay. I mean, I, you know, prison should be the last answer. Right. Right. I mean, prison should be what we're stuck with when nothing else worked. Right. But I mean, these aren't, and you know this, right. These aren't problems that are 
unique to the criminal legal system. Right. These problems exist within the criminal legal system because we're failing in so many other areas. Right. You know, we're failing in in education and resources, housing, and, 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 and sure, poverty. Oh, yep. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, you you can't you can't mm-hmm. look at these things independently because right. they're they're all interplaying with each other and. Right. Unless we take a holistic approach to how we're going to address all of these issues, then we're continually going to make short-sighted decisions. Right. You know, building more prisons isn't the answer. Right. You know, let's let's try and figure out build some more housing. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, let's let's yeah. let's give people a good place to live and teach them something and let them get jobs and the crime rate will go down. And so, and this is so this is what like gets me every time about this. Like we know this, right? We know that if you have a lack of resources here, it makes it easy to funnel people here into prisons, right? More likely mm-hmm. that they could possibly end up here. And from a state or federal kind of level or thinking, they have to know that too, right? We are all looking at the same stats and the same things. Why isn't it a, like an effort, right? We know we just talk about Biden saying, hey, we're going to expunge and get rid of all of these you know simple uh let everybody pardon everybody had these simple marijuana possessions on the federal level like why not make those type of efforts to say hey because we know when people don't have these resources you know they could possibly end up here let's 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 get everybody housing let's 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 figure out how to make sure we support our states in, in, in our cities with these housing resources, our schools, you know, every there's no food apartheid. It's like you have grocery stores and medical support. Like, why doesn't that happen? Or why though? Or or, or or should more lawyers and judges be going to the state legislators that see these people on a daily basis that have the lack the lack of these resources, and because of that they end up committing crimes. Do they should have, they have a more of a social responsibility to speak up more? Like what 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 should we be doing, and how can it happen <laughs> if we all know these things? Uh, I'm throwing them deep at you. No, <laughs> I mean I wish I had a good answer for your question, right? I mean my instinct is that because I think we 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 oftentimes come up with the short sighted, easier answer, right? right? It's easier to to build more prisons to house people in and to lock people up than it is to to get at the root causes of why people are committing crimes. That's crazy. Um, (laughs) And, and, and you know, I wish I knew, look, I have lots of ideas for ways that we could be doing things better, but at the end of the day, what I like, I know how to help people one at a time. Right. And that's, and that's sort of where I've tried to find my place in this is that I can see where somebody has been wronged within the system Mm -hmm. and I know what the problems are within the system that got them there, but I can help that individual. And, you know, at the Tennessee innocence project, that's what we try to do. Mm -hmm. And we can find these folks and we can help them and we can get them out of prison. And, you know, look, one of the things that I think is really important about these innocence cases is that I think it provides an opportunity to shine a light on some of the systematic problems because, right. I think people are more open to recognizing the systematic problems when it's happening to somebody who's innocent. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. And these systematic problems exist whether somebody is guilty or innocent, right. but they they stand out more, in my <laughs> yeah. opinion, when yeah, it's do. an innocent prison, that, innocent person that goes to prison for 30 years. Right. So it's my hope that every time there's an exoneration and we learn that story and mm-hmm. we go back and we debrief about why that happened to this person, mm-hmm. We're not just talking about that person, but we're right. talking about the systematic failures 
of how this person got there. Right. And if these innocence cases can shine a light on what these problems are and maybe come up with ways that we can systematically do things better, then, you know, maybe there's something positive right. that, that can come out of these situations despite the devastation that it has on the individual and their family. Um, from a city level, we, we, you know, we, we, we are a mayor-led city, you know, Pretty much, mayor makes all of kind of the major decisions. Um, from a city level, what role does like a mayor or our city council um, or some of our other political uh, decision makers play into something like an innocence project? Being able to you know support those who are innocent and have resources and funds and be able to expand um, just not throughout the city but also throughout the state. First thing I always tell everybody, whether they're, you know, the mayor of Nashville or mm -hmm. they're, uh, you know, a, a student at a local high school is talk about this problem. Okay. You know, let people know that this is real and that it exists. Um, you know, at any given time in the state of Tennessee, there are thousands and thousands of people that are locked up. Mm -hmm. Even if we're getting it wrong one, two, three percent of the time, we're still talking about hundreds right. and hundreds of innocent people locked right. up in our state for something that they didn't do. Right. So... I think people need to be out there and talking about that issue. That issue mm. now is you know look are are we always looking for funding resources and those things like that? Of course we are. We're right. a nonprofit. We right. we're only able to stay in business and help our clients primarily because we have people that buy into the work and support the right. mission. Take and, resources, and and we're incredibly grateful to that. Right. But there's no question that the more resources we have, the more boots we have on the ground helping people who are wrongfully convicted. And mm -hmm. we are not at a place in the state of Tennessee, even though we're doing this work and we're trying to help as many people as we can, mm -hmm. we are not in a place where we can help all of the people who need our help. So, and because and the other problem is that because these cases are so large mm -hmm. and they take up so many time, so much time, and we're having to go back and investigate things that are 20 years old, mm -hmm. In order to do a good job for clients, we can only take so many cases at a time. Right. So, you know, we might be able to, at any given time, represent 10, 12 people mm -hmm. total. Whereas, you know, we might have 100 people that are writing in asking for help. Right. So, look, there, there are a lot of important nonprofits and people doing work that are under-resourced and right. could use more help. There's no question that innocence work, if it was better resourced, more people would be on the ground doing this work and we would see more exonerations in our state. You made me think about um, something that um, that always comes up, which is re-entry barriers. Um, I know that when somebody, you know, has wrongfully convicted or, you know, um, or guilty, they, they, they do their time and they have to, they come back home. Like maybe what, like 95% of the folks like come back into our community. Um, they go, they go to prison, something like that. Uh, I think 90, 95%. Um, and they, you know, they face job issues, um, housing issues, just adjustment. It, they, they, they need resources to reenter back into our society um, and figure out like what's going on, what can I do? But because they may have that felony on their record and things like that, it makes it look different, difficult to you know reenter back into society and be a whole community member again. 
Um, what are are there challenges? Um, I just assume there are challenges once the Innocence Project, you know, exonerates a person after serving 20, 30, 40 years, you know, there may be some re-entry barriers. What what does that look like? Just try, you know, a lot of things. What does that look like? And, and do you all play a part in that readjustment part as well back into society? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that's a big deal, for instance, with our clients is that say somebody served 30 years for something they didn't do and then they get out, mm -hmm. you know, most of our folks at that point, they're an older demographic, right? right? They're in their 60s. They're right. in their 70s. Right. So, you know, most of them have missed the formidable opportunity in their lives to qualify for Social Security mm -hmm. um, because they were locked up that whole time. And, you know, you have limited job options. Anybody coming out of prison with a felony on your record, mm -hmm. that's a lot harder if you're 74 years old right. and you've got to try to figure out how to support yourself. So, yeah, there's real issues when it comes mm -hmm. to just basic living your life type of things. Because the other thing that happens too, you know, we have a client, she was exonerated this year and she's fortunate in the sense that, you know, when she was arrested, she was 41 years old. So she gets social security, but she had worked her whole life and was very successful before she was arrested for a murder she didn't commit. And she owned her home. She had a car. She had nice clothes. She spent all that money on her legal defense. Right. So, and, and, when, when somebody says they're sorry and that you're innocent and this shouldn't happen to you, mm -hmm. nobody pays her back. Right. Right. She doesn't get all of that back. Right. So folks have to figure out how to get by. So, mm -hmm. you know, it, it, it's bad enough that your life was taken away from you. Right. And, you know, all of your resources were probably spent on lawyers over the years. Right. Now you got to get out and figure out how to do it. Um, that's so, crazy. yes, we stay mm -hmm. very close. Like our clients who get exonerated, uh, we stay very close with them. Right. And we're, we're really tight with them. Um, sometimes we're lucky because they have good family support. You mm -hmm. know, we have a gentleman who was exonerated a few months ago. who did 30 years <laughs> for a murder he didn't commit. And he's got a wonderful daughter. And mm -hmm. he lives with her and her husband. Or uh, he's just moved out into his own place. But she's really been his support and his mm -hmm. rock since he's gotten out. And... And that's huge, right? right. Um, so every one of these situations is different, but mm -hmm. when somebody gets out, it's, it's not like there's a playbook, like right. this is what you need to do and this is how you're going to be able to pay the rent every month and this is how you're going to get groceries. Right. Um, it's a struggle. Right. And, you know, and people who have support, who have family, who have friends that can help them, right. that's great. But there's people who get out and don't have those things. Right. And, and it, that's an incredibly difficult road. Just been proven innocent all this time. And now you have to figure out like, okay, I'm back in life. You know, mm -hmm. I got to figure out where I'm going to stay. I got to, I'm, I'm 60. Now I got to figure out, I got to get a career again. Right. And all those things. That's just, you just made me think about it. I, I like that. Like, cause everybody doesn't get that million dollars at the most, you know? And so if you don't get, if you're not eligible for those funds, and even if you get exonerated, right? Like even right. if even if you're able to to prove that you didn't do it and, and this was this was all wrong and you should have never went to prison in the first place, think about that person going on a job interview with an employer. Like what's going through that employer's head? Like <clears throat> are they doubting whether the person was innocent or guilty? Right. Are they thinking, well, even if they're innocent, am I gonna hire somebody that's just been in prison for thirty years? Right. I mean, that that's that's a real challenge. Right. Um, 
currently we still in a place to where if you did serve time and have a felony, that's something you must disclose on the application. Um, do you feel that that should be kind of taken away at this point, especially for a person that served their time, paid their debt to society? Or do you see that something that, you know, people are always going to want to know in which is going to cause judgment on if that person, even if they're skilled and qualified to be able to do the job, that's going to put doubt in people's mind. Like, ah, I don't know. I mean, I think we need to make a decision about do we want to put practical things in place that give people an opportunity to succeed or do we not? You know, to me, to me, this is analogous to taking people's driver's licenses away because they can't pay their court costs. Right. Right. I mean, that's fine. You take their driver's license away and now they can't get to work and now they don't have a job. So you think their court costs are getting paid now? Right. So we already make it hard enough mm-hmm. for folks that have felonies on their record uh, to get by and to be successful. <clears throat> right. I think we need to put more thought into making that transition easier and better. And right. if, you know, if we, if we lift people up mm-hmm. and we, and we say, you know what, whatever you went to prison for, you served your time, you're out. Now we're going to lift you up and we're going to support you. So right. you can be a productive member of this community. Right. We'll have less crime. Yeah. Um, you know, look, that's anecdotal. That, that you know, that's 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 that's, that's me who sounds, thinks that sounds kind of practical to me. <laughs> but you know, I, I I just think as a community, we would do better supporting people and lifting them up right. when they get out of prison than making things harder for them when they are already in a very hard situation. What keeps you going? What keeps you doing this work for so many years? Because I know it's it's exhausting. At times, I know it's a lot of hundreds of hours in cases. Um, there's some ups, there's some downs. But what, what keeps you motivated, Man, I'm Jason? lucky. Uh, you know, I I get to go to a job every day that I really like where I get to help people. Right. I mean, not a lot of people get to say that. True. So, you know, I feel very fortunate to get to do the work that I do, right. you know. And, you know, and I, and I go home every night to, you know, my beautiful wife, my beautiful kids. Right. And... And I get to get up the next day and I get to, to fight and, and, and work at a job that I care about. Right. So I, I think I, I couldn't be luckier. Right. And when people, you know, I understand the, the, the substance of the work that we're doing at the mm-hmm. Tennessee Innocence Project is heavy right. and, and can be dark and can be a slog at times working through these cases. But we're very lucky in the mm-hmm. sense that, you know, my, my legal partner jessica and we talk about this a lot you know i mean god we got the best job going right does it ever like weigh on you like this or has it ever like just like man this 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 system ah you know and just you you you, you're you're doing this work and you're trying to do more great work and, and and build and help community and and get people that are wrongfully convicted out of prison like does it does any of this 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 way on you. Do you do you go to a therapist? Do you talk, who do you talk to? <laughs> you know, people are talking to you to make sure you know to 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 try to figure out how can they get out of prison. But like, who does Jason talk to? Who do you confide in when things like get dark and get tough a little bit? So I mean, sure, I, I you know you talk to your family, you right. talk to the people you work with, but look, you also have to make a decision at some point that you want to do this work <clears throat> and you want to be effective at it, and mm. you're not going to be effective. If it's keeping you up every night and, right. you know, you can't sleep and you can't be present at your kid's soccer game. Right. You know, you, you've got to be able to find a way. And it's not like you ever turn it off. Right? right. I mean, we're always thinking about these cases. I'm always thinking about 
my clients who are locked up for something they didn't do and how I can get them out. That, that doesn't ever turn off. Right. But I can't help my clients if I'm so angry mm-hmm. and so defeated by, by the, the place that they're in that I can't objectively do the work to help them. Right. So, and I, I realize this as a young public defender, like, because especially when you start doing this kind of work, you take it home every night and you take it home in a way that's not healthy. Right. And you've got to figure out how you can do it in a healthy way mm-hmm. or else you can't stick it out. Right. I mean, it's just because it'll, it'll get you. I mean, right. the, you know, the, the tragedy of, of the folks within this system will get you. Right. So everybody does it, I think, differently. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you've got to figure out how you can balance those things. I mean, to me, it's, I enjoy the work. I, I really like my clients and like working on these cases. So despite the fact that we're dealing with heavy topics, mm-hmm. I, I feel very lucky that I get to do the work. So, mm-hmm. you know, I mean that, that just keeps me rolling. Yeah. You know, I don't like to me, it, I, I don't, I wouldn't do good at a, at a job where, I didn't feel some personal sense of fulfillment at. Right. Um, there's no right or wrong about that. That's mm-hmm. just me. Um, I, I would struggle at a job like that. So having a job where I believe in the mission and it provides purpose, um, even if it's heavy and it's hard, I still really like doing it. Mm. That was a message to all the young lawyers and future lawyers out there that want to do this work. Um before before I let you go, I got a couple more questions for you. Okay. Um, I want to hit on the Biden. <clears throat> he just pardoned, you know, everybody in, in on the federal level that has simple marijuana possession. Mm-hmm. And I was t- telling you before, um, you know, what is that simple marijuana? What does that mean? Because, you know, most of the people, all of the people that I know that are in federal prison for any type of drugs is 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 nothing simple it's not like a simple possession like as a joint or two or you know a pound of weed it's like pounds of of marijuana you know bushels of marijuana what trying to distribute and so what is that can you break that down and kind of what does that mean in in far as from a federal level and, and what biting is who's he's actually pardoned yeah, I mean, I think it's a small percentage of drug cases on the federal level that are going to qualify under okay. this pardon for the reasons you're pointing out. Um, that being said, it, it, it's going to be thousands of people that are affected by this. And that's a really big step. And, right. and I, I think it's a mistake for people to say he needs to do more than that. That's fine. We can all agree that more needs to happen for right. folks that, are, that have been caught up in this system and shouldn't be locked up on, on these kinds of cases. But this is a big deal. Yeah, 6,000 people, yeah. Right. It's a, it's a big deal to pardon thousands of people. Right. It's a big deal to ask states and Congress to revisit the way that we're, we're prosecuting people or should we be prosecuting people at all on marijuana cases. Right. So uh, I don't think we should undersell the importance of what he did yesterday. I, right. In my opinion, it's a big deal. It will affect mm-hmm. a lot of people. Is there more work to be done? Of course mm-hmm. there's more work to be done. Right. But but we're in a better place today than we were two days ago on this issue. For sure. And I think impossibly, um, I'm going to get her name wrong, Brittany Griner, regard, uh, WNBA star. Mm-hmm. Maybe that has something to do with it too. Um, because it's like, hey, Biden, 
you're talking about going to get her from Russia for you know breaking their their marijuana rules, but there's people right at home sure. that needs pardoning. <laughs> um, that we can do it and both save her and save the people too that were you know just convicted for simple marijuana possessions right here in the United States that that shouldn't be serving multiple years you know for just marijuana. Um, and so I think that might may probably have did some convincing for his for his staff as well possibly. I mean, I look, I, I think he gets it right. Like, right. I think he gets where the country is on this issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think like, the last thing we need is more people in our prisons. Right. And do we really need people in our prisons for right. possessing marijuana? I mean, yeah. is this is this a good use of our right. time and resources in this country? Good, good, Come on. good strategic political timing too for Biden. <laughs> Election is coming up kind of soon. So yeah, but yeah, I, yeah. look, I. I think he believes it. Sure. Okay. I mean, I think he's yeah. going to, I think politically it's a good move for him, yeah. but I also think <clears throat> at least I want to hope that I, he's doing right. it because it's the right thing to do. Right. And, and maybe rectifying some decisions that he made, you know, in his early political career around supporting crime bills mm-hmm. and things like that, possibly. Um, Jason, this is, this has been amazing. You gave us a master class on exonerations, our legal system, um, some things that could could be different, some things that need to change, and just the work that you all are doing and the dedication. Um, I really in, enjoyed this, um, but I'm not letting you go yet, though. That wasn't the close. <laughs> I'm not letting you go yet. Um, I, I want I want I want to give you the last word, um, and 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 it could be extrapolating on something you know we touched on, or just something that people just need to know um, about what's happening at the Tennessee Innocence Project. Um, or just what's happening around and just our, just our legal system in general um, that we need to be aware of, um, or just even some motivational inspiration about people who may want to do this work um, in their future. Well, let me start with that part of it, because uh, there, there's nothing I love more than when law students come up to us and say, this is the kind of work that I want to do when mm-hmm. I get out of law school. Um, and my message there is we need you in the fight. You know, there are not enough people on the ground helping folks who are wrongfully convicted that are sitting in prison. And there's a lot of them and there's a lot of them all over the country. Right. And, and that doesn't mean that, you know, lots of people who are getting convicted aren't actually guilty of what they were prosecuted for. Whether we think they should have been prosecuted in the first place is a different story. Right. We have this problem on our hand independent of that. You know, this is a system that is run by humans. Right. Mistakes will be made. It's not, it's not even always about somebody was corrupt or lied or cheated Mm -hmm. or stealed. Science gets better over time. Right. We learn more about things like DNA and fingerprints and forensic pathology. And we got folks that have been sitting in prison for a really long time mm-hmm. on bad science. We got folks sitting in prison because mistakes were made. Right. And we need more people doing the work. Right. So if, if you're a law student and you're out there and you're thinking about what I want to do, we need you in the fight. All right. All right. Um Oh, man, you just gave me like a thousand more questions I could ask right now. <laughs> I have to bring you back because I just think like we talking about technology, talking about DNA, fingerprinting, and all these things. How they have just made it like is is that the biggest difference that we're seeing and and why people get exonerated? I, I'm gonna leave. I want I want to just is that, so is, DNA not not as much as people think. About twenty okay. percent of the cases of the exon. So there's an organization called the National Registry of Exonerations that tracks all of the exonerations that have happened since 1989 in the United States. And there have been thousands of them. And 
they go back and they sort of debrief and figure out, well, what was the root cause of the problem that happened here? And it's normally not one thing. It's normally a perfect storm of things that went wrong. But only about 20% of the time it's DNA cases. Okay. And that, you know, there's a lot of reasons for that, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, these cases that are that old, sometimes the evidence wasn't gathered. Sometimes mm-hmm. it was destroyed. Sometimes it deteriorated over time. Right. So most exonerations are not DNA cases. Now, mm-hmm. a lot of them may have another scientific component to them, right. but a lot of them are just a false confession or a mm. misidentification. Mm. And there's, you know, there's some great books out there that, that highlight some really bad misidentifications that have led to wrongful convictions. Wow. Um, so all these issues are out there and, you know, I appreciate you having me here. I appreciate you letting me talk about the work we do at the Tennessee Innocence Project yeah. because um, we're there to help people mm-hmm. on these situations. Um, we want to be good members in this community and we want to be good members across the state of Tennessee. Mm-hmm. And if there are innocent people sitting in prison, please reach out to us at the Tennessee Innocence Project mm-hmm. because we're here to fight. Well, Jason, I appreciate your time. Um, I want to bring you back for sure because I don't think we could talk about this enough personally. Um, and then I want to be able to use whatever platform I can to tell those stories. Um, and so I'm here as a, as a, as a supporter, as a community person that could, you know, whatever I can do to get the word out about something that needs that be, be the word out, you know, I can't cover all of Tennessee, not yet, but I can do natural, I give me the greater natural area. Um, just let me know. And I, and I, and I appreciate everything y'all do, um, at Tennessee Innocence Project and, Man, this is amazing. Well, and I appreciate you caring about this and, yeah. and having me here to talk about the work that we yeah. do. Now you're among all the other great, you know, lawyers <laughs> and attorneys and judges. And then I and I and I find C Dep Nashville that have been able to bless this platform and give me their time to talk about these things that are very complex, but you all articulate it and make it so plain, I think, for our viewers and watchers to really understand um and put it on their mind because our proximity to it. You know, it's probably far in between and you all are every single day having to think about these things um, while we're not. Um, And most people probably don't think about them until they're directly affected in some type of way. So I thank you for constantly reminding us that, you know, there's innocent people that are in prison right now that need to be free and home with their families like we are. So thanks. Well, thank you for having me. And, you know, thank you for giving the Tennessee Innocence Project a Mm -hmm. spotlight to talk about what we do. For sure. Keep up the good work. You know, (laughs) I appreciate it, Jason.